0: Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 3, Episode M, Infatuated by the Empire. It's been an interesting spring, full of changes. In particular, people changing jobs, changing cities, sometimes even changing countries. So one of my friends has gone off to work for a motorbike company and another has become a teacher at a fancy school, and another's got a job in the civil service. And we're waiting to hear any day now about one of our friends getting a job as a vet. Even I've got in on the act. So congratulations all round. And this episode, I thought we'd celebrate by getting a job in podcast form. Not a job in the modern world, of course, but a job in ancient India. In Gupta India, to be precise. And to be even more precise, let's get a job in the civil service, either the army, the police, or the civil administration. What's that I hear you say? Isn't this all just a cynical excuse to talk about administration and account books and all that stuff that's drier than a camel's talc? Well, yes. But yes, without apology. The Most ancient history, at least in this period, in this area, is about the state. Normal everyday people don't get much of a look in, mostly because they're just not writing records that last. But here, in the everyday mundane bureaucracy, that's the place where the lives of the normal folk come into contact with the state. So bureaucracy offers this little window out onto the everyday. And if we're lucky, we can just catch a glimpse of what real ancient Indians lived. Ready? Let's get to work. So, you're fascinated by the workings of the Gupta Empire. And you want to be part of it. Well, I don't blame you. It's a tremendous machine. It's the only superpower of its time on the Indian subcontinent. And it's been that way for centuries. The army has forts up in the Himalayas in the north, but its power stretches all the way down to southern India with the pearl fisheries and the administration stretches from the Eastern Sea to the Western Coast. This is a machine you wouldn't mind being a cog in. But I'm afraid it isn't actually so very easy getting a government job nowadays. Yes, in true career advisor fashion, I'm going to make getting a job sound very hard indeed. If you've never had a career advisor, this is what they seem to do. I suppose they're trying to lower expectations, as my school career advisor would say. You see, if we were back in the Mauryan age, there would have been plenty of government jobs on offer. The Mauryans ruled pretty much all of India except for the southern tip. And they ruled it centrally from only a few centres, a few massive cities with governors at their centre. And the governors were surrounded by a huge number of civil servants who were ruling the lives of villagers all around the continent in almost excruciatingly painful detail. And the Morians had this huge army which they required to make the whole empire run smoothly. So getting a government job in the Morian Empire, maybe that wouldn't be so hard. And even if this were back in the age of the Cushion Empire, well, there would be less government jobs around, because they ruled less territory, but getting a government job would be pretty straightforward. If you're a cushion raised in Bactria, you can get a job, no problems. If you're not a cushion raised in Bactria, well, don't call us, we'll call you. And when I say that, please bear in mind that telephones won't be invented for about a millennium and a half yet which is almost as long as you need to wait for half a chance to serve in the Kushan Empire. But this is the age of the Guptas. And one thing we're going to be hitting our head against again and again on this job hunt is the fact that there aren't many government jobs out there. Partly, that's because the Guptas didn't rule as much territory as the Mauryans. They had a smaller state. But also it's because much of that state was, was ruled not directly by the Guptas, but by vassals. Vassals who run the territory in their own way, using their own civil servants. The Guptas would have had no direct control over that. And it's also because Guptas didn't have such a straightforward principle of employment as the Kushans. You didn't need to be a Kushan to get a job in the Gupta's civil service, obviously enough. But you didn't need to be a Gupta either, or a Brahmin, or even a Kshatriya. In fact, caste, varna didn't didn't matter that much, so long as you weren't shudra or worse. And what your private religious beliefs were, whether you, you shared the beliefs of the empire, the emperor, that doesn't seem to have mattered at all either. Now, there were strict requirements on who could become a senior civil servant, but there are far more candidates out there for far fewer jobs. And that's bad news for you. So getting a good job in the Gupta Empire is going to be tough. But don't worry, I, your ancient careers advisor, am here to help and we're going to work it out. Let's start low with a position in the rank and file of the army. So you're thinking about joining the ancient Gupta army. Good choice, because there are certainly openings here at least. And you'll probably get to see the world too. Because there are plenty of wars, and there's plenty of need for soldiers. And from time to time, the Gupta empire would call up soldiers from the ordinary everyday citizens. So if you're going to join the Gupta army, you're going to come into the army camp. And even as you're walking in for the first time, you can already tell the different groups of soldiers employed by the Gupta Empire. Here we have the forest tribesmen. Forest tribesmen are actually quite important in Gupta warfare. They may come across as a bit rude to you, as irritable as wanting to get away from all this fine civilization and go home. But they are tremendously useful because the Guptas use them as the very first infantry into the battle to wear out the enemy a bit before the real soldiers get busy. The tribal chaps, they probably keep themselves pretty much themselves, and you might be doing the same. Then we've got the mercenaries, mercenaries not exactly your reliable types, like most mercenaries that's the stereotype, and you'd better watch out for them. But they are at least competent. Most of them are private armies of guilds in the towns, or they're little private armies that hire themselves out to guilds. Bands of archers paid to watch over a caravan or fine goods. But from time to time, the commander-in-chief of the Guptas will hire them and put them to work in the army. And finally, we have the Maula, the proper army. Nothing here but veterans and sons of veterans. For these men, soldiering is in the blood, they're born to it. Their fathers served as professional soldiers, their fathers' fathers served as professional soldiers and even their grandfathers' fathers before that. These guys are probably tough as nails and loyal almost to a fault. It's said that they wouldn't think twice about giving up their life if needs be. The Maula are the elite amongst the basic troops. And in a battle, the commander's going to keep them back in reserve until they're absolutely needed. And then they'll rush forward and clean up and win the day again. Anyway, you're not going to be joining any of these groups. You're in what's called the Brit Bala, the Supporting Strength. These are the sons of the soil, the everyday folk recruited for a particular war before they're let free to go back and gather the harvest or sell horses for calories or whatever you civvies do. They're thought to be a decently loyal bunch. They're the ordinary folk of empire, after all. They've got some loyalty to the the, the empire they're fighting for. But they're called into service during these hard times when the enemy is under pressure. And you'll be serving in one of the four classic divisions of the army. The, The division of the elephants, the cavalry, the chariots and the infantry. If you were serving over in the east of the empire, down where the Gunga meets the sea well then you might be expecting to be involved with the elephants. Because elephants are tremendously useful out there. Elephants are great for swimming across the rivers of the Ganga Delta, and they're also great for thrashing out a new road through the jungles that grow on the banks. A path for the rest of the army to follow through. But you're not serving over in the east, you're actually going to be serving over in the west. Because you're going to be facing the menace of the White hunts the fiercest warriors you'll ever fight against. They are an existential threat to the empire, so your work's needed. Out there, in the west, beside the elephants, there's going to be a lot of cavalry. And that's because the the Huns use plenty of horsemen themselves, and they often have archers on horses. Over the years, Indian armies have, have adapted the technique. They've picked up Uh, The idea of horse archers, probably not from the Huns, but from the Cushions earlier, uh, and from other invaders from outside India, invaders from the steppe. So the Gupta army have horsemen uh, and their horse archers, and they're wearing pretty much some of the same gear as as the Cushions did. Skin-tight trousers, that makes riding a horse much easier. Knee-high boots, and they even wear those, those peaked cushion caps. And the horsemen are armed both with a bow and with a sword. Now for some reason, modern uh, historians sometimes say that the Guptas didn't have horse archers, that they had to face down the white Huns without the ability to fire on the move. That's actually wrong though. We know pretty much for certain that they did have horse archers, and they had a lot of them, and they used them in the west against, against the nomads and the Huns. But anyway, you don't need to know that because you're not going to be working with the cavalry. You'll be in the beating heart of the army, the infantry. Don't feel slighted. In years gone by, perhaps, the infantry were a bit of an afterthought in the army, the sad uncle in the corner. But in the time of the Guptas, the infantry are the centre of the army. They're its core. And not only do they fight on foot, but they also do all sorts of other things on foot too. They arrange food, they shift supplies, they construct roads and so forth. Now, we don't actually know what sort of training you receive as a Gupta foot soldier, but we can have a pretty good guess. Let's begin your training with a bit of military theory before we get down to your weapon. So imagine a 21st century army recruit sitting down for his first day of training and being told this. Many provisions should be laid aside for you, for you, the imperial court, and for your city, enough for five or six generations. May you also have darts, many weapons, lances, breastplates, helmets, bucklers, and swords, and anything else suitable for war. May you also have artillery and cattle trucks, for you never know what evil men are planning. And imagine our 21st century recruit read on. Indeed, I saw the following and deemed life unhappy. For I saw the former emperor, the Lord Michael, who once held the rank of Caesar, being a powerful emperor when the sun was rising, and by the third hour of the day he was pitiful, abandoned and blind without possibility of escape. Do not become arrogant over the empire's glory, nor should you be bold in your mighty deeds and say, who can bring me down from the heights of my glory? For, as that great wise man Gregory the theologian says, many things change in a moment's time. Now, I imagine our 21st-century army recruit would be a bit miffed. Lances? Cowtrops? Caesar? But I thought I was supposed to be learning about modern warfare. And what on earth has Gregory the Theologian got to do with any of it? The passage I read from is from a 12th-century Byzantine war manual. And it would be pretty weird to have it as the basic manual of war today. But that's pretty much what the Gupta army had. The story goes that Chandragupta II ordered a manual to be written on warfare and how to run the state and all of that business. And a manual was duly written, but almost all it contained was word for word a copy of that already ancient text, the Arta Shastra, the, the, the text written by the advisor of Chandragupta Maurya a whole 780 years earlier which is pretty much like a modern-day soldier being taught using a 12th-century Byzantine manual. Although I suppose military historians nowadays teach Chinese texts and Clausewitz and all that, so perhaps it's not that crazy. In any case, the theory of war that the Guptas had was mostly out of date. In some places it was updated a little, but even then it still wasn't quite right. For example, in the ancient texts and traditionally, people thought of an Indian army as having four arms. We've mentioned them already. Elephants, cavalry, chariots, infantry. Well, in the new Gupta version, an army had six arms. Elephants, cavalry, chariots, infantry, and the war council, and a well-stocked treasury. Well, the truth of the matter lies somewhere in between. I mean, literally. The... the, the Gupta army had five arms. Elephants cavalry, infantry, the war council, and a well-stocked treasury. But no chariots. Chariots, that was just a hangover. Chariots were pretty much obsolete by Gupta times. The Gupta manual says, take the chariots and place them between the elephants, but no Gupta commander would be silly enough to do that. Don't get me wrong, In the Gupta time, the idea that a chariot is an impressive war machine still around. Gupta emperors, for example, are still sometimes described as excellent chariot warriors, in something like the way that we might build a statue of a a modern hero and give him a sword. But the chariot was as obsolete then as the sword is now. Tactics had moved on, technology had changed, and a chariot was just too slow to react on the Gupta Indian battlefield. More important are those two extra elements that the Gupta Manual added, the War Council and the Treasury. Pretty obvious why the Treasury matters to you as a soldier. You want to have enough to eat, you need some good armour, and maybe you want to get paid. Come to think of it, it's also pretty obvious why the War Council is important to you, but more of that later. Because it's time to start the practical end of your training. You're going to be armed with a bow. It's not a longbow like Indians used in the past, it's a fancy newfangled compound bow. Much shorter, but it contains hidden power. Unstrung, it looks like this oddly bent little thing, but if you string it up, you can see it arch back into a powerful looking weapon, poised. It's made of wood, with some horn inserts, and you've got a cord, a string of sinew. And this little thing can fire an arrow 1,000 yards. Which is a good distance. Some of the more dubious history books you can read will talk about uh, ancient Indians in the Gupta era having steel bows. Now as far as I can make out there's absolutely no evidence for this and in fact uh, Guptas wouldn't have the high quality steel required to make a decent bow. So either these sources have got to be assuming that the weapons of ancient Indian soldiers were like those of the divine weapons in the epics, or they're assuming that the weapons of the ancient Indian soldiers were like the weapons in medieval India. Either way, it ain't necessarily so. You're going to be assigned to a section in the army. Now, each section seems to have contained elephants, cavalry, and infantry, so it worked as a sort of mini-army on its own, and it had its own commander in charge of it. But there were plenty of different sections, and in charge of all of the commanders was the commander-in-chief. Now He was to be a man of noble family, high in energy. High in energy seems to be a prerequisite of all sorts of military might, and it seems to be something that the has really cared a lot about. Good soldiers are almost always described as having high energy. Anyway, you should have a bunch of other pretty obvious prerequisites. Should be patient, should be well-trained in Warcraft, should be generally quite intelligent. And then there are some unusual requirements. If you want to be a commander, you're going to have to have lots of friends. You can only hope that the unpopular candidates didn't get asked about that in the interview. That would have been pretty awkward. So one of your bosses will be the commander-in-chief with the commanders underneath him. But in addition to that hierarchy, there seems to have been another hierarchy kind of cross-cutting it. And that hierarchy was about the different divisions of the army. So if you'd been the elephants, you would have been answering to a lord of the elephants, who would in turn have been answering to a great lord of the elephants in charge of all the elephants in the whole army. Likewise, if you'd been the cavalry, there would have been a captain of the cavalry, who'd been your boss, and then he would have been answering to the great captain of the cavalry over the whole army. And these guys seem to have been involved in the War Office. The War Office, which seemed to have different specialities for different divisions of the army. For example, they had one department that just looked after the health of horses and elephants, and another department that looked after the health of the men, and another department maybe that looked after the treasury, and so forth. Now, this whole slightly convoluted command structure is a bit different, actually, from earlier empires in India. Back then, the emperor was at the top of the army. He was called a Mahasenapati, a great lord of the army. But the Gupta emperors didn't generally take that title. In fact, there aren't any Gupta generals at all. No one gets called a Senapati. That's not to say that the emperor isn't involved in the army. Sometimes he's the one leading the troops. Sometimes in fact, almost always, he's the one who works with the war council. The king is to meet with the war council in secret. Now, the, the war council is supposed to have 12 members, or maybe 16, depending which rulebook you're following. But they meet in secret, and they discuss what's gonna, what they're going to do. And once they come to a decision, it's the, the emperor's job to make sure it's put into action as soon as possible. Emperors are not supposed to disagree with their war council. So the emperor's involved, but he's not exactly in charge. At least, he's not supreme. Right, now you've got a sense of who's who, who you should be listening to, let's get you off to your post. You're going to be starting out in Vesali. Vesali is an important town, the other side of the river from Pataliputra. It's been around for a long time, It's it's an ancient town, but under the Guptas, It's become a true administrative centre. There's a pretty large rectangular temple that the Guptas built there, and they built a fort. Actually, they built both of those things a little bit shoddily, poor quality bricks. Maybe they didn't pay the workmen enough. But anyway, the administrative centre was there in Vesali. It was a square room filled with letters and commands from officials from all over the empire. There are letters there from police officers, there are rulings from judges, there are letters from treasury superintendents. The great queen of the Guptas, her her message was left there too, and even the second ruler of the Guptas. So, you settle into army life in Visali. There's an army store there, so you make sure you've got all of equipment in good working order, and you're settling down. But then, a letter arrives to that square room. Word has come, the Huns have once again crossed over into Gupta territory. And this time, they're led by a young and cruel king, the one they call the rebel. The army gets together to march out to meet them. Now, marching is a little bit different than you might expect. When you march, you're not led by your commander. You're led by someone else called Anayaka and his retinue. And he's not a commander, really. He's more just the man in charge of marching. He's somewhere between a quartermaster and a general. And he's there to make sure that you're marching at the right speed and that everyone's got enough food. So he's going to be the one coming to you and ordering you to go off and get food for everyone else. If you're lucky, you won't have to get food for the horses and elephants. The people looking after the horses and elephants will arrange that. So you take the long march towards the Huns. And you're marching for a month or more. And then you get there. Erran. A town, little more than a village, but surrounded on three sides by a river. And close to the route north into the Grupta heartlands. And here, where the great battles in North India have been fought so often before, you will meet the enemy. We've got no report of the details of the battle, but there are more schematic pieces of advice on how battles should generally be fought. First, the elephants charge in. The aim for them is to break the enemy ranks. After, the elephants run in the forest tribes, attacking wildly to break the enemy spirit. And then, the main army moves in. Now, oddly enough, the cavalry is at the centre. So in European warfare, very often you kept the cavalry on the wings where they could hope to surround the enemy and flank them, but apparently not in ancient Indian warfare. So you, as an infantry soldier, you'll probably be marching on one of the flanks, bow in hand, arrow at the ready, ready to turn the sky dark with your hail of arrows. And we know the rest of the sad story. The Gupta army was destroyed, the local commander was killed leaving behind a grieving brother. The Huns marched on. And they reached that town of yours, Veshali, your home base. It was torn apart. It would never again regain its importance. A few centuries later, a passing Chinese monk noted that it was in ruins now. And then it slipped out of history entirely. And that square room, the administrative center, was buried. The letters were left there, and over time they quietly rotted away, leaving nothing but the letter writer's seal attached to an empty string. So now you've heard what life is like in the Gupta army, maybe you've decided it's not for you. Well, There are alternatives. You could try and join the law and order team. You could become what they called a wielder of the rod. Now, often uh, modern historians talk as if these guys were policemen. In fact, I've already done that earlier in the episode. But really, the wielders of the rod are more than that. They enforce the law. And sometimes that means acting like a policeman. Sometimes it means acting like a detective. And sometimes it means being a judge. Maybe even it also meant being a bit of an executioner. Maybe not literally killing people, but at least imposing some sorts of penalties. There's another way that the wielders of the rod weren't like policemen. They were probably not really civilians. They were probably some sort of military officer, at least involved with the military apparatus. Anyway, it's an exciting time to get involved in law and order in the Gupta Empire. Because in the Gupta Empire, law is changing fast. In some ways, it's getting considerably more sophisticated. New law books are being written pretty much all of the time with new laws. Criminal law is starting to separate out properly from civil law. And all sorts of different legal systems are starting to develop, all working at the same time in the same place. And a lot of this flurry of legal activity is being driven by one thing that the Gupta people seem to have been obsessed with land. Nowadays they say that possession is nine-tenths of the law, and I had always naively thought that that meant that the law is mostly about possession. Apparently, my naive thought is wrong. Possession is nine-tenths of the law means that if you're in possession of something, you're assumed to own it by the law unless someone can prove otherwise. That's confusing. Anyway, in ancient India, possession was not nine-tenths of the law. It was exactly seven-ninths. Because there were 18 topics of the law and 14 of them were about property. And quite a lot of those 14 were mostly about land mortgage, lease, sale, partition you name it, if you're going to be part of the law and order mechanism, you're going to have to learn it. When it comes to criminal law, things are pretty straightforward. There are, according to the law books, only three causes of crime sex. Anger, ambition. So that would make the motive part of the detective work pretty easy. Although actually, though I'm being flippant, I suppose it's pretty hard to think of any motive that doesn't fit into one of those categories. Sex, anger, ambition. There are also increasing amounts of what we might nowadays think of as superstitious detective work. Ordeals, where you give someone poison Or you you make them burn in the fire, and if they survive, they're innocent. That sort of thing. This is actually increasing during the Gupta era. So we can't think of the law as becoming more and more rational. And if you're not going to use an ordeal, well, you're going to decide the cases in the old way. Using the four heads of the law. Speaking truth, being justified, not quite the same thing as speaking truth, Resting on customs and precedents, and adhering to the emperor's commands. Okay, well that was a bit of a crash course, but let's assume that you've learnt all of the law and you've learnt how to apply it, and you can start work. Well, you won't actually be judging every case. And that's because, as I said, in the Gupta Empire there are plenty of other courts. Courts which aren't just general courts for everyone courts for specific groups. There are courts for the forest people. There are courts for soldiers. There are courts for merchants. Those merchant courts, by the way, they were especially powerful. Usually they were run by the local merchant's guilds, which was increasingly powerful as the Gupta Empire went on. And by the time of the end of the Gupta Empire, these merchant courts were allowed to impose fines and even punish people with forced labour. Now, all of these sub-courts were independent from the state in a sense, they weren't established by the king, but they had to be respected by the king. Still, even with all of these independent little courts, you, as employed by the state, you're going to get a fair amount of work, because any plaintiff who's not satisfied with one of these independent courts can go to the state courts. Now, there were various different kinds of state courts. Some of them were stationary, based in the provincial town, but others were moving about from village to village on a circuit to meet the needs of the local people. And of course, I recommend you join one of the travelling ones so you get to see a bit of ancient Gupta India. Now, when you're judging people, you can't just do whatever you want. If your, your, your authority is found to be in question, then your judgment will be expunged. And if your plaintiff isn't satisfied with your judgment, they can take the case to a higher court. And if they aren't satisfied there, they can go all the way to the highest court in the land, the state court, the court that was run by the king himself together with three advisers. Once again, curiously, the king is obliged to follow his chief justice's advice. Just as with the council of war, the king is involved, but he's not supreme. He's just the first amongst equals. Once you've made your judgment, penalty will be passed. We've got a little bit of evidence that penalty in the Gupta era was was pretty light. One of the, the Chinese monks travelling through said no one was put to death. Everyone was just given fines, big fines for a bad offence, small fines for a less bad offence. Doesn't seem to be literally true. It seems to be that people were from time to time put to death. it's interesting that just as in the Mauryan Empire, in the Gupta Empire, a sign that the empire is prosperous and stable is that the punishments are light. It's almost as if having light punishments boasts about your power and your glory, which is a wonderful thought. Now, if you think that all this sounds pretty great, then you could apply to become a wielder of the rod. But it's not going to be very easy, I'm afraid. The qualifications for entry they are rather dependent on your birth. Now, part of the problem is caste, Varna. The law books disagree, but it seems that during the Gupta era, practically, the judges at all levels could be from any of the top three castes. You didn't have to be a Brahmin, as usual though in ancient India. If you were a Shudra, you were out of luck. But a problem for even more people was that quite a few of the the positions as a wielder of the rod, they were hereditary. They were passed down from father to son. So, unless your dad's a cop, you might be out of luck. So, you want a government job, but you don't fancy being a soldier and you can't make it as a cop? Well, fine. Let's look at the civil service. Now I know, I know, you've heard all of the stories about civil servants wielding tremendous power, bringing down kingdoms. But slow down a bit. For one thing, some of those stories just just are stories, they're not true. But for another thing, there are other stories. Stories that don't go in the usual way. One of my favourite stories about the ancient Indian civil service starts in a pretty familiar way. A minister is caught misbehaving in the king's harem, and he's thrown out of the palace. The king is very publicly angry, and the minister very publicly takes his family and runs away from the kingdom. And he heads for its nearest rival, the kingdom of Kasala. And there, he settles down quietly in the capital. Now, I know what you're thinking. You've heard this story before. It's all a ruse. The king's just pretended to throw his minister out so this minister can work as a spy in the enemy's court and bring the enemy king to ruin. Well, the enemy king, the king of Kisala, he'd heard those stories too, and he was thinking in pretty much exactly the same way that you're thinking. He saw this minister, supposedly thrown out by his old employer, settling down in his own capital city, and he smelt a rat. And sure enough, one day... The minister approached the king of Casala. He said, go and invade my former boss. His land looks like it's strong, but it's a paper tiger. Underneath, it's weak. It's ready for the conquering. Trust me, and all that power could be yours. The king of Kassala was not to be fooled. Traitor, he cried. You're being paid to say this. The minister protested. No, no, no. I'm not like the ministers in, in the storybooks. Uh, Apparently, he was unaware that he was in the story. Uh, I really did misbehave with the harem. I really was thrown out. Look, I can prove it. Take some of your soldiers across the border to my old boss and massacre a village, and then tell the soldiers to wait there in enemy territory until they're captured and see what happens. Well, this is a rather strange argument, I think. If I was given that as a suggestion of proof, I'd be pretty unsatisfied. But somehow, the king of Kasala was tempted to give it a go, so he sent his soldiers over the border to massacre an enemy village, and he told them to wait there and be captured. And sure enough, they were captured, and they were taken to the king. The king asked them, why have you massacred my people, and violated my lands? And they told him, look, we're just soldiers, we're just trying to make a living, we're just trying to feed our families. The king frowned. Well... Why didn't you come to me? Here, take these gifts, go home, you've got enough money now, you don't ever need to massacre another village. The soldiers took the gifts and went home, and on the way they told all that had happened to the king of Kisala. Now somehow, that persuaded the king of Kisala that the minister wasn't a spy, that he was alright. And again, I'm not entirely down with the ancient Indian kingly reasoning here, but in any case, the King of Kisala decided to follow this minister's advice and invade. So the King of Kisala took his army and crossed into enemy territory, but none of the enemy fought back. So the King of Kisala took his army right up to the walls of the ancient city, but the gates were left open, completely undefended. So, the King of Kasala took his bodyguard and he marched right into the into the palace, into the throne room, right up to the King, surrounded by his a thousand advisers. But the enemy king just sat there placid. The King of Kasala had them all arrested, bound up, and he took the throne for himself. Now, the King of Kasala was it seems a bit of a whimsical king, and he decided on. An odd punishment for his defeated enemy. He instructed his soldiers to dig one thousand and one pits, one for each of the thousand ministers and one more for the king. And then he said bury the ministers and the king in those pits up until their heads, so their heads are just poking up above ground, and then leave them there for the wild beasts to eat. Pretty messed up. So, by night time, the king and his ministers' heads were poking out above ground outside the city, sort of like a, a ministerial cabbage patch. They heard in the night the cry of the jackals. The ministers started to panic. The king, he was unconcerned. The leader of the jackals stalks into the cabbage patch and he sniffed out the king. The king lifted up his neck craning it as if to give a jackal an easy grab on his throat. The leader of the jackals moved in to kill, but suddenly the king moved his head and he grabbed the jackal's own throat in his mouth. The leader of the jackals howled in pain and confusion. Humans are not supposed to to eat jackal throats. Jackals are supposed to eat human throats. Everything was upside down. The other jackals heard their leader cry out. They were scared. They fled. Then the king by an immense act of strength, lifted his arms through the earth, out, and sent the leader of the jackals flying. And he freed his other ministers from the ground, one by one, until all were safe and sound. They started to move back towards the capital city. On the way... They came across a couple of ogres fighting over a body. Both the ogres wanted the body, and they were really getting quite heated. They couldn't resolve the dispute, they were almost coming to blows. But they saw this, this virtuous king passing by, and they decided to ask him for help, confident that he'd give them a fair and impartial solution. He just seemed like a decent sort of chap. The king said, yes sure, I'll settle your fight, but you know, I'm a little bit dirty, so first bring me some water to wash in and some fresh clothes. The ogres, it turns out, have some way of conjuring water and clothes pretty quickly, and soon the king was washed and all fresh. Fresh as you'd be after a night in the earth anyway. Right, said the king, I'll solve your fight. Give me the sword of state. The ogres, ogres conjured up the sword of state. The king took the sword, and he cut the body in half, and he gave one half to each ogre. A simple enough solution. You would have thought the ogres would think of themselves, but... Then they were ogres. And they were pleased enough with the solution. So the king asked to be transported back into the palace and for all the ministers to be taken to their homes too, and the ogres by magic teleported them all back to their homes. Late in the night, the king of Kasala stirred in his sleep. It had been a good day. He had conquered his enemy. He should be sleeping soundly. But it seemed that someone was in the room. Now that couldn't be possible. He'd set a guard outside his room and another guard outside of that. No one could have got through. He reached for the light. And there he saw the enemy king, the man he'd just buried and left in the ground for dead. But here he was, clean and well-dressed and holding the sword of state in his hands and with a firm look in his eye the king of Kasala panicked. Now, he probably thought of a dozen harebrained schemes to try and get out of this fix, but how do you deal with a king who can come back from being buried alive like that? So finally, the king of Kasala got on his knees and begged forgiveness. And his enemy, being the virtuous man that he was, duly forgave him. Remarkably, they slept the rest of the night in the same room. The king of Kasala on the couch, and his enemy in his rightful place, up on the royal bed. Hmm. I'm afraid I got a bit sidetracked on that one. The story was supposed to be about the civil service, and it somehow ended up somewhere else entirely. Anyway, let's get back to getting you a job in the Gupta civil service. The Guptas have an oddly structured civil service. Sort of hodgepodge. Some of the offices in the Gupta Civil Service, they were taken straight out of Kushan tradition. Just as Gupta Emperors sometimes dressed up like cushions, Gupta Civil Servants sometimes worked like cushions too. Simply the model of a great empire when the Guptas came to power. So it's only natural that some of it stuck. But other parts of the Gupta Civil Service have a uniquely Gupta feel, a uniquely Gupta structure. In particular, most of the civil service is run by amatchas, the ministers. And the more senior ministers are called the kumara amatchas, the, the princely ministers. They didn't usually serve princes, you understand. They were just a higher class of minister. But the name itself doesn't really help us out much, because different sorts of ministers did all sorts of different jobs. So let's try and find a particular role for you. Now you could start out, looking for a job in your local village. You could probably get a job there. But you could only get the lowest of state jobs. If you're good with your numbers, maybe you can work as a village accountant. Or if you're a good writer, and you're handy with a measuring stick, then you become um, the keeper of the records. And here, your work will be all about land, that Gupta obsession. Who owns what, and where exactly, to the nearest millimetre. Don't bother... Trying to get a more senior role in the village. In the Gupta Empire, villages tend to be run by a village headman. And the village headman tends to have supreme power. Village headmen make their own laws, and the king will the emperor will enforce them. In some cases, the head of the village could even stop a king and his army coming into the village. At least sometimes, all of this power seems to have gone to the headman's head. So we hear stories of headmen expecting the peasants and the wives of the farmers to do all sorts of menial tasks for them. Maintain their granary, carry stuff in and out of his office, clean his house, even make his clothes. And if all of this supreme power over village sounds good to you, if you fancy on becoming a village headman, well, as I said, just don't bother. Being a village headman, that's usually hereditary. So if your dad ain't the head of a village, then you ain't one either. And where it's not hereditary, it's because the king decided to give you that village. Emperors and kings in the Gupta era choose to give up part of their empire wholly into the power of local headmen, which is pretty scary. And even if the village headman isn't hereditary, and it isn't appointed by the king himself, then it's given to some top military official. You already turned down a military career earlier in this episode, so that's not you. Sorry mate, you're out of luck. But you'll not have any more luck on the next rung of the ladder either. The next biggest administrative unit was a collection of about 11 villages that worked together. The law books say it should be 8 or 10, but it seems to have been actually about 11. But that's ruled by a council of the headmen of the village. So, since you aren't a headman of a village, you aren't on the council. Things aren't any easier the next level up after that either. The next level is the district level. On the district level, uh, you'll have a a big town at the centre, and have a good-sized government building. That's where you'll find the local wielders of the rod with their permanent court. That's where you'll also find the ruler of the district. He's a powerful man, ruling over many villages, gathering enough tax to pay for his own mini-army, complete with elephants and cavalry. That's really quite a lot of money. And he'll have a district committee to advise him, but his position's probably hereditary, and the committee members cycle through fairly regularly. The power seems to be mostly with the lord of the district. And the next level up from that, well, frankly, don't bother at all. That's the province, the biggest unit below the empire. And there aren't many provinces in the Gupta Empire. There are only six. Six that cover the core lands of the Gupta Empire, just up and down the Ganga. Now, being the governor of a province is a pretty sweet job, don't get me wrong. Now, the, the provinces aren't exactly huge, they're not nearly as big as uh, a Mauryan province, but they are there for the governor to enjoy, it's said. The governor is not merely a manager, he's someone who's probably able to take a, a fair chunk of the tax for himself and live a pretty fine life. Well, if you really want to try and become a governor of a province, take this simple questionnaire. Is your last name Gupta? Did you recently win a big battle for the emperor? Did you recently give up your kingdom for the emperor? And are you a favourite the emperor? If you answered yes to at least two of those questions, maybe you're in with a shot. Otherwise, don't call us. We'll call you. Every week we read something from the original sources. Now this week, I should really be reading from that Gupta manual of statecraft and warfare. It's called the Kamanakya Niti Sara. Might be written about the Gupta period, might be written a bit later, it's difficult to tell. And in fact, just to fulfil my podcasty duties, here's a short extract. A high-born, truthful, highly powerful, resolute, grateful, forbearing, energetic and greatly munificent and affectionate king is said to constitute a foe difficult of being subdued or defeated. Untruthfulness, cruelty, ungratefulness, fearfulness, carelessness, idleness, cheerlessness, uselessness, pride or pique, an extreme procrastination and addiction to gambling and the company of women, these are the causes that ruin prosperity. Disregarding this, a king brings about his own destruction pious stuff. You get the picture. Right, now my podcastly duties are out of the way, I can read another story. It's from the Ocean of Stories, and it's one of those Vitala stories, one of those vampire stories, where the vampire gets a king to talk by telling him a tale and asking him a riddle at the end. This tale is about a king and his commanding officer, appropriately enough for the episode, and it's an especially odd tale. Perhaps the oddest tale we've had on the podcast yet. Not least because it gets pretty dark in the middle and doesn't altogether straighten itself out by the end. And it goes like this. In the capital of a great king, there was a great merchant and he had an unmarried daughter named Unamadini. Whoever there beheld her was at once driven mad by the wealth of her beauty, which was enough to bewilder even the god of love himself. And when she attained womanhood, her politic father, the merchant, went to the king and said to him, King, I have a daughter to give in marriage, who is the pearl of the three worlds. I dare not give her away to anyone else without informing you. For to your majesty belong all the jewels on the whole earth, so do me the favour of either accepting or rejecting her. Now, when the king heard this report from the merchant, he sent off, with due politeness, his own brahmanas, to see whether she had auspicious marks or not. The brahmanas went and saw the matchless beauty of the three worlds, and they were once troubled and amazed. But when they had recovered their self-control, they reflected, If the king gets hold of this maiden, the kingdom will be ruined, for his mind will be thrown off balance by her, and he will not regard his kingdom. So, we must not tell the king that she possesses auspicious marks. When they had deliberated to this effect, they went to the king and said falsely to him, no, she has inauspicious marks. Accordingly, the king declined to take that merchant's daughter as his wife. Then, by the king's orders, the merchant, the father of the maiden, Unamardini, gave her in marriage to the commander of the king's forces, named Baladara. And she lived happily with her husband in this house, but she thought that she had been dishonoured by the king's abandoning of her on account of her supposed inauspicious marks. As time went on, the line of spring came to that place, slaying the elephant of winter, that with flowering jasmine creepers for tusks had ravaged the thick clustering lotuses, and it sported in the wood with luxuriant clusters of flowers for mane, and with mango buds for claws. In that season, the king mounted on elephant, went out to see the high festival of spring in that city of his. And then a warning drum was beaten to give notice to all matrons to retire as it was apprehended that the sight of his beauty might prove their ruin. Well, when Unamadini heard that drum, she showed herself to the king on the roof of her palace to revenge the insult he had offered her by refusing her. And when the king saw her, looking like a flame shooting up from the fire of love, when fanned by spring and the winds from the Malaya mountain, he was sorely troubled. And gazing on her beauty, pierced deep into his heart like a victorious dart of karma, he immediately swooned. His servants managed to bring him round, and when he had entered his palace, he found out from them by questioning them that this was the very beauty who had been formally offered to him and whom he had rejected. Then the king banished from his realm those who reported that she had inauspicious marks and thought on her with longing, night after night, saying to himself, Ah, how dull of soul and shameless is the moon, that she continues to rise while her spotless face is there, a feast to the eyes of the world. Thinking thus in his heart, the king, being slowly wasted by the smouldering fire of love, pined away day by day. But through shame he concealed the cause of his grief, and with difficulty he was induced to tell it to his confidential servants, who were led by external signs to question him. Then they said, Why fret yourself? Why do you not take her yourself as she is at your command? But the righteous sovereign would not consent to follow their advice. Then Baladar, the commander-in-chief, heard the tidings, and being truly devoted to the king, he came and flung himself at his feet, and he made the following petition. King, you should look upon this female slave as your slave girl, not as the wife of another. And I bestow her freely upon you, so accept my wife. Or I will band her in the temple here. Then, king, there will be no sin in your taking her to yourself, as there might be if she were a matron. When the commander-in-chief persistently entreated the king to this effect, the king answered him with inward wrath. How could I, being a king, do such an unrighteous deed? If I desert the path of right, who will remain loyal in his duty? And how can you, though devoted to me, urge me to commit a crime which will bring momentary pleasure but cause great misery in the next world? And if you desert your lawful wife, I shall not allow your crime to go unpunished, for who in my position can tolerate such an outrage on morality? So death is, for me, the best course. With these words the king vetoed the proposal of the commander-in-chief for men of noble character lose their lives sooner than abandon the path of virtue. And in the same way, the resolute-minded monarch rejected the petition of his citizens and of the country people who assembled and entreated him to the same effect. Accordingly, the king's body was gradually consumed by the fire of the grievous fever of love and only his name and fame remained. But the commander-in-chief couldn't bear the thought of the king's death had been brought about in this way, so he entered the fire, for the actions of devoted followers are inexplicable. And here's the riddle. So tell me, which of these two, the king and the commander in chief, was superior in loyalty? And that's a riddle I leave for you. And that's it for this week. Thanks a lot for listening. There are a few caveats I should probably add: the civil service structure and, and the command structure in the army. We don't exactly know what was going on there. I've just given my best guess, which is I think based on what historians have said. We're in the home stretch of season three now. There are going to be a couple more episodes, special episodes based on on life in the Gupta era, but. I'm beginning to get the itch to do a bit of narrative history. So season four is going to start sometime soon. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast. If you have, please consider donating to my wife's charity. It's the Snehal Sid Patrick Memorial Fund. The details are on the website. There's a link in the description. Have a great week. Take care.